Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we brought you an update on how wolves are doing in Yellowstone National Park, reported on a consultant's report regarding ways to keep Cape Cod National Seashore visitors safe from great white sharks, and told you about the demise of the Outdoor Recreation Advisory Committee that wanted to bring more amenities to National Park campgrounds. In this week's episode, I traveled to Saguaro National Park in Arizona to learn about the Saguaro census they're conducting there, and Erica Zambello makes an off-season visit to Cumberland Island National Seashore along the Georgia coast. It's been two months since Hurricane Dorian pounded the seashore. While more repairs are needed, the island remains popular with bikers, hikers, and those who just want to gaze at the ocean. Every generation of National Park visitor comes home with their own memories embedded in their minds of wonderful adventures in the National Park system. It might be of geysers fuming over the Firehole River at Yellowstone National Park, or the incredible bird life at Everglades National Park, or Thunder Hole with its booming waves at Acadia National Park. But these settings change, not necessarily in a generation or two, but over many generations. One day, we're told that Joshua trees at Joshua Tree National Park in California might no longer grow there. There's concern that the rivers of ice at Glacier National Park in Montana will melt away and be gone as well. What about the saguaros at Saguaro National Park in Arizona? Look at a photo from the 1940s and the landscape stands tall with a forest of saguaros reaching skyward. Come forward to 2010, that same landscape has far, far fewer saguaros. So does that mean that Saguaro National Park one day will lose its iconic cactus? This is Kurt Repencheck. I've come to Saguaro National Park to meet with biologist Don Swan. He conducts a census of saguaros once a decade. The census goes back to 1990, and they're establishing a firm record of just exactly how saguaros are doing in this national park. Don has taken me out into the park to explain how they conduct the census and what they're learning from it. Why conduct the census? Well, I think there, there are many, many answers to why we conduct the, the census, but the most basic is that, you know, we feel it's our responsibility to keep track in a scientific way of the saguaro population in the park. The saguaro is the name of the park. It's the reason we're here. Um, it's, it's obviously a really important um, plant for the southwestern deserts and for, for southern Arizona. Um, it's a, it's a, the, the project is scientifically designed, the plots are randomly placed, so it allows us insight into how the saguaro population is changing throughout the park and in different habitats, and we've been able to really use that information in the last few years to, to see that there are differences in different parts of the park and different habitats. Um, and it's basically also just kind of, you know, national parks are reference areas for other areas that may be damaged by by things that we humans do. And so, you know, this allows us to see kind of how well the saguaro is doing in an area that's being managed for natural resources. Yeah. Now, of course, the saguaro is a key organism here in Saguaro National Park. Quite a lot of wildlife rely on it, no? 
Yeah, saguaro is a is a is a fascinating plant for for us as humans for a lot of reasons. It's very charismatic, you know. It's it's a charismatic mega plant, really. Um, but it's also, you know, some people would call it a keystone species because so many animals depend on it. So and and that runs the gamut from the small insects that pollinate the flowers, all the way to javelinas and, and other mammals that depend on the fruit to eat. So the saguaro is providing food in the form of of nectar in the flowers. They have these beautiful white flowers that bloom at night. Um, the the fruits themselves, which are very rich, um, you know, in calories and 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 uh, other things that are really good for animals. Uh, they provide shelter. So we have elf owls, for example, that nest in holes that are constructed in saguaros by woodpeckers. So. Um, so once the holes are constructed and the nest is built inside, then then the holes can be reused by other birds in, f- in future years. Um, we have raptors, great horned owls, and Harris's hawks that will nest in the branches. Um, so they, they, you know, and, and even when they die, you know, saguaros are, you know, as the flesh is rotting, it's full of these amazing, interesting insects that that live in the in the in the rotting saguaros, and then the the wood, the the you know what we call the saguaro ribs lay on the desert floor for you know many years and provide habitat for for lizards and birds even um, and uh, so it's 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 really contributing to the wildlife population throughout its uh, life cycle yeah yeah what species of tree are the nurse trees up in northern utah where i'm from the dominant trees are lodgepole pines scrub oak wasatch maple and out in the rainforests of olympic national park spruce hemlock and maples that topple over and begin to decay on the ground turn into nurse trees by giving seeds a medium to take root in. This is this is just one of those classic, wonderful desert trees. It's got chlorophyll in its branches, which is why it's green. That's why it's called green stick or palo verde in Spanish. Um, it's a legume, so it's 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 fixing nitrogen from the soil. Um, has has deep roots and can and ta- tap into some of the groundwater. Um, it's drought adapted in a lot of ways. It can actually kind of like lose its branches during dry periods and then sort of grow back during wetter periods. Um, it's also about 20% of the of the Palo Verdes in this area are used as nurse trees and have saguaros underneath them. Okay. Um, but it was it's a it, it it burns really hot and it was a very common. Uh, fuel wood in the early 1900s uh, in this area we were uh, we had a lime industry and they would they would burn off the uh, limestone to create lime for building materials so how is the health of the palo verde trees doing in the park hard to say we haven't seen a lot of establishment recently but we had a pretty good period and if you look around you you can see you know there's quite a few in this area so i'd say they're in general they're doing pretty well Mm -hmm. but is that something to be concerned about if you start losing those as uh, the so-called nurse trees that that could impact the saguaro growth yeah absolutely i mean i think the the health of the of the trees and particularly the palo verdes but also some of the other trees here like like mesquites um, is really critical to the health of the saguaro population so we keep we, we keep a close eye on on the tree population and uh, you know again the tree, trees tend to be established and live for long periods of time i don't know how long palo verdes live but for, for, for some time and so changes that occur and are occurring uh we may not see them you know in a in a in a, in a decade or so you know it may play out over several decades yeah now, Saguaro National Park is pretty big, more than 90,000 acres. How many saguaros are you able to measure? Um, but some of the plots have, you know, 100, 150 saguaros. Some have 1,800 saguaros. So, and how big are the plots? Uh, 
they're 200 meters on a side, so four hectares. And so about the size of a couple of football fields. Yeah, everybody wants to know football fields. Yeah. And how there's many a, plots there's do you have? here if we wanted to. The tiny guy? Yeah. And how many plots do you have? Uh, we have 45 plots. So yeah, here's a, here's a nice healthy middle-aged or, you know, kind of young saguaro. Just to give you a sense of it, let's take a measurement. So what we do on these plots is we, you know, we basically bring people out, usually about 20 groups of 20 or so. Mm-hmm. And they, they measure, map, and collect other data on every saguaro on the plot. So we systematically work our way through the plot. And then when we find a saguaro, um, we, we stop and we measure it. So something like this, this, this stick is, is uh, about 180 centimeters, just under, just about six feet tall. And so what I'll do is, in this case, I can measure this just by hand. So I'll just, I'll put my finger right here at 180. And I'll just have you tell me, including the spines, about when I'm, when I'm at the top. You're pretty close there. Okay, so I've got 180 plus 43, which will be um, 223 centimeters, so 2.23 meters tall is this saguaro. So what we would do is just then, um, you know, the, the one person would, would measure it. I don't have a pen, but then record the, record the height. And just, just for your information, so on average, we've been measuring saguaros here at the park for a long time. And what did I say? This one's about 220. So that's about 38 years old on average. A saguaro that's that height would be about 38 years old. That measurement calculation is reliable year in, year out. The height of a saguaro can be equated to how old it is. Right. So what we've, we've been measuring saguaros in Saguaro National Park since the early 1940s. Yeah. And, um, and so we have, you know, pretty good kind of average growth rates. So we know just from, from how, how fast, you know, how tall they are at different ages. And we've mapped, you know, we've been measuring the same saguaros for a long time. We have a really good kind of average growth rate for saguaros in this district of the park. It's slightly higher than the average growth rate for saguaros in the west district of the park that doesn't get as much rain. And during rainy years, they grow faster. And during dry years, they grow slower. But, uh, but I can say on average, this saguaro would be about 38 years old. Wow. Yeah. And... Swallows can live, what, 150, 200 years? Yeah, um, you know, ask me in 100 years. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say, uh, yeah, probably 150, 200 years. So some of the saguaros that were, that were measured in 1941 when these activities really started um, are still alive today. Uh, and so, yeah, we know, we, we have a pretty good sense of what's going on with them. They are, the ones that from 1941 are, are definitely dying off, and, um, but there are some that are still still from that area. So yeah, we think maybe 150 years. Um, and probably they, they grow a little more slowly and maybe live a little bit longer in the western parts of their range. Just because there's less precipitation? Yeah. yeah. In your plots, do you mark each individual saguaro so you can come back 10 years later and look at a specific one that you had tracked 10 years earlier? Right, so in some of the plots, um, we have individual saguaros marked and mapped. Um, some of those saguaros were actually marked originally in the 40s. Most of them were marked in the 70s. And then on the on the saguaro census plots, the really big scale effort, we don't mark in every individual saguaro. 
um, we know kind of how many are on a plot and um, but yeah so some some are actually there there's a there are some plots in this park um, that have marked saguaros on them that have been measured every single year since 1941 so it's the longest running monitoring program um, probably the longest running monitoring program in any national park for annual monitoring that's done um, for, for flora with the and support vegetation? of the park but it's done by independent scientists yeah. for flora and fauna or? for well for yeah um, for for just monitoring yeah natural resources i don't know of any annual monitoring programs that go back to 1941. listener and reader support make national parks traveler possible every day of the year if you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Here in the Sonoran Desert, without a lot of annual precipitation, the saguaros must really take their time growing. They grow really slowly when they're young. So, um, I'm going to say this one was about 38 years old, but a saguaro that's, um, you know, a, a saguaro that's a, a foot tall is about 17 years old, and a saguaro that's an inch tall is just about seven years old. So it takes about seven years to grow that first inch here where they grow pretty quickly, so even more slowly in other parts yeah. of the range. Yeah. Now, since the census started back in 1941, you've seen a, a dramatic change in mm. the saguaro forests yeah. here. Yeah, and just to emphasize, the census itself started in 1990, So, okay. but we have other monitoring plots that go back to 1941. So the dramatic change has been, in this part of the park, um, is that we have seen um, a loss of the really large, you know, multi-armed kind of magnificent saguaros that were the reason the park was established here in the first place in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, and, and for many decades, there wasn't any establishment of new saguaros, what we call recruitment. So probably from the early 1900s right through to the 1960s, we, we had very few young saguaros coming into the population. Um, Starting in the 1960s and really accelerating in the 1980s, we had a large number of young saguaros come into the population. So the population has just dramatically uh, increased in the last uh, you know, 40, 40 years or so. Um, what we think happened, again, especially in this part of the park, 
that's not so clear in other parts of the park was that we'd had a lot of wood cutting. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of trees were cut down for fuel. Saguaros, um, when they're very young, they can't store water. They're really susceptible to drought and to freezing. And they do better if they're protected by a tree or a shrub, what we call a nurse tree. And so those trees that were cut down probably were a contributing factor as to the young saguaros not being able to survive because they just didn't have the protection. So many trees were cut down. Um, we also had pretty heavy cattle grazing um, in this area. Um, and then saguaros don't, you know, we don't naturally get a crop of saguaros every year. They, they respond to very favorable conditions of climate, so high precipitation, lower temperatures. And so, um, you know, we wouldn't normally get saguaros every year, but we miss some of those good periods, we think, because of the lack of nurse trees. So we had a really great period in the, in the, in the 80s, lasting until the early 90s that was a little bit cooler, a little bit wetter, and we got a lot of saguaros coming in the population. So, you know, we're, start, we're starting to really see those out, you know, they're, they're between, you know, a foot and, you know, you know, this one's 38 years old. So they, they tend to be in that age category. They're still, most of them are still not tall enough to be seen above the nurse trees. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the saguaros, I mean, I, I think of the population as being pretty healthy, but a lot of the saguaros that are out on the landscape, are, are, you, you don't see them. You know, when you just drive around the loop road, you kind of have to start walking around and looking under the nurse trees. Yeah. What types of bird species rely on the saguaro? So for bird species, you know, the Gila woodpecker and um, the uh, gilded flicker make the holes. Uh -huh. and, and they're the ones that actually do the work and they scoop out the flesh. And then the saguaro actually makes a scar that protects, the, um, protects it from losing water. And that scar, in a sense, is what the animals build their nests inside of. Um, they're, they're the saguaro boots. Um, when the saguaro dies, they're left on the desert floor and they look like boots. But those, those holes are usually used once by woodpeckers, but then they're used by elf owls, um, by purple martins, by finches. Uh, really, there's a whole suite of bird species that will use those holes for, for nests in subsequent years. So are there related um, wildlife studies that go along with your census? So, um, we, so basically, we kind of see ourselves as a, as, as a place where people can conduct research on saguaros uh, for all different kinds of of plants and animals as well as you know DNA and other you know aspects of saguaro biology so um, we try to encourage as many kind of simultaneous studies going on uh, during the census as we can we don't have we don't have a study looking at birds as part of this year's saguaro census but we have studied elf owls in the past and uh, the other other use of uh, the cavities by birds what we do do is we collect information on how many uh, bird holes are in each saguaro um, and we find that there are differences on the landscape in terms of you know how many there are, and and also we we can relate those to the height of the saguaro and the number of arms and things like that. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, uh, the, this 38-year-old saguaro probably is not prime um, for um, cavity nesters. No, but if you look over on the hill there, you can see a a saguaro that's about six times as tall as this one. It's got about six or seven arms on it, and you can see the bird holes in it. So. Those older saguaros with lots of arms are the ones that often have, you know, a dozen holes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so those are good for birds. So we have, um, you know, we do other kinds of research on saguaros. We, we're collaborating this year with the University of Arizona that, that is, is the, the scientist um, is looking at how saguaros take up water and how um, water moves through the plant. 
you know, and so this can this can tell us a lot about you know whether the winter rains are more important than the summer rains, and he's using isotopes. So what we're looking for this summer, we've got our volunteers out. If we find a swar that's been knocked over by a windstorm, we're gonna he's gonna go out and sample the tissue of the swar um, that's that's recently died, so we, we he can get some insight into how the water's moving through the swar without harming a, a living swar. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah. We also have a study um, right now of saguaro flowering phenology. So the ultimate question that we're interested in is, you know, what what are the factors in the environment that, that drive saguaro flowering, um, and is that changing with climate change? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, what are the temperatures that, that will induce flowering in saguaros? What's, what is the, the precipitation during the previous period? So when do the flowers, uh, when do the saguaros start to flower? How long is the bloom period, and how many saguaros flowers? How many flowers? Sorry, it's like a tongue twister. How many flowers do we get on the saguaros on average during a year, and how does that relate to temperature and precipitation? And then is that timing changing? You know, as temperatures are rising. Yeah. So um, you know, there's a lot of animals that pollinate saguaros, and are their life cycles on the same cycle as the saguaro, or and will they be if the, if that changes? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the census is it year long? So the census starts um, in October of 2000. So it's the 2020 census. We do it every 10 years, and it coincides with the U.S. census. I always say that so we don't forget to do it. Um, and um, we start in 2019 when the weather cools down, which is about now, and then we do it through April. So um, uh, we have 45 plots to do. As I said, some of those plots have up to 1,800 saguaros on them. So what we typically do is we bring out a group of about 20 people, and we, we get groups from local businesses, from uh, youth groups like uh, sororities and fraternities at the University of Arizona, high school students, um, hiking clubs. Um, we bring them out. Um, we kind of teach them how to measure the saguaros, how to collect the data so that it's accurate, how to search for the saguaros. Um, and so we, we, we break into small groups, and we do that. Uh, we check each other's work, so we double search each, each area. Um, and then, um, then we, we try to finish that plot with the group, but if, it, if there's 1,800 saguaros and it's a long hike to the park, to the plot, because they're randomly located, you know, it might take us, you know, four or five different groups to finish a single plot. Yeah. So, um, so it's usually done on a Saturday. We also try to get as many weekday groups as possible. And, uh, yeah, we just keep chipping away at it with the goal of finishing all 45 plots by April. Wow. Wow. Now, the saguaros live at the upper elevation of the Sonoran Desert, is that correct? Yeah, so, well, you find them down at lower elevations. That, you know, the, 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 where they grow tends to also reflect both the elevation and the habitat. So they tend to like rockier areas, um, and we think that's probably because they may get blown down during, you know, in areas where the soil is, is softer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, you'll find them pretty low elevations in the Sonoran Desert but in the park here, um, they, they start at the lower elevations of the park, and they, and they range up to uh, over 5,000 feet in elevation. So they have a pretty, pretty broad range in the park. We, we go up to almost 9,000 feet, so we don't have saguaros all the way up to the top of the mountain. Right, right. But you're not concerned as, uh, say, the folks at Joshua Tree might be, that it's getting too warm for Joshua Trees, and so they're running out of habitat. It's, a, it's not an immediate concern. Uh, saguaros are, are very resilient to drought once they reach a certain age the the concern the main concern we have right now is that we've we've been in a long period now getting close to about 25 years uh, and we'll learn more with the census this year where we haven't had a lot of young saguaros coming into the population 
Um, in the past, in this area, that was because of the lack of nurse trees. Currently, we feel like it's probably climate-related. So we've been in a long-term drought. That drought has been exacerbated by, by higher temperatures. Swarrows need to reach a certain size where they can store enough water that they can make it through the dry periods. And so they, they, we get these favorable years or multiple years of establishment when we have cooler conditions and more rainfall. And we just haven't had those conditions. Uh, for the most part, there's been a few small windows uh, very much in the last 25 years. So we've had some swarrows come into the population and we're hoping that we'll find more uh, in this year's census. But, uh, but you know, the last, the, the last census, we didn't find very many very small swarrows at all. Yeah, wow. You know, one thing, we were looking at those photos that date back to 1941, where there seemed to be a very healthy forest of saguaros across mm -hmm. the landscape. Yeah. Do you think we'll get back to that type of uh, panorama? <laughs> That's a great question. And, and the answer is, no, I, I don't think we will, um, but, but not for the reasons most people think. Um, I think those saguaros that we have out there today will grow up and they'll, they'll get arms and they'll be impressive. But part of what makes that photograph so impressive is that there aren't trees, so you can really see the swarrows. <laughs> so in order to get back to that same scene, we'd probably have to cut down the trees again, <laughs> which we're not going to do. No. <laughs> so we, we have here a few saguaros of different ages. Again, there's three here that, that are probably, you know, um, certainly more than 50 years old. And you can see they're just now starting to be visible. If you were standing, you know, three or four hundred yards away, you'd, you'd just maybe be able to see these saguaros beginning to peek above their nurse trees. So, how tall do you think that saguaro is there? Which one? This one here. Uh, so you're about six feet? About 20 feet. Yeah, so 20 feet. So if it's, so 20 feet tall, that saguaro would be about 67, 68 years old. Wow. So it, it's, it takes that long for it to really kind of be tall enough that you'll see it above the nurse tree. So um, these ones are a little bit younger. And then we can walk down here. Looks like there's some, some young ones over here. So this one is certainly tall enough to be able to store water and, and be pretty resilient to, to a drought situation. Um, but it's older than most people would think. Let's see, that's about, about 48 centimeters which makes it about about 21 years old wow so that's where it's about 21 years old and probably use this white thorn acacia as a as a nurse tree so what we do on the census is we we have people work in these um, you know transects basically kind of these belt transects and so one or two people in the group are just looking for saguaros so they're searching under every nurse tree what we're we're really encouraging them to find, you know, very small saguaros because we're particularly interested in them. Now we know that we don't find every small saguaro that's out there, and so we use statistics, you know, based on many years of of, of studying saguaros on annual plots to get a sense of how many we're missing. So, like for example, maybe this saguaro, if if this plot was, if this area was surveyed annually, maybe we didn't see that saguaro until it was 12 years old. Maybe a different one we saw when it was eight years old, 20. We can use that information to make a, an estimate of how many saguaros we're not finding. So we can, uh, we can do those kinds of estimates based on the census data. But we do r look really hard and try to find every saguaro that we can. 
Now, obviously, the, the visitor, when they're coming through Saguaro National Park, they want to get a nice, beautiful picture of a saguaro mm. with lots of arms. And uh, most of the ones we've looked at today are just columnar. Um, when do the arms appear? Is it um, a response to an injury? No, they, they appear. Um, so they don't always appear. You don't always get arms on saguaros. Um, I always like to ask people, so I'll ask you, what do you think, why do you think saguaros have arms? For bird perches. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is that they they produce the flowers at the tip of the growing stem, and they can produce flowers at the end of every arm as well. So a saguaro that's doing really well, um, you know, is getting enough water that it needs for survival, is is then beginning to put its energy into reproduction. So once they reach a certain age or a certain size, um, and it's usually until they're older than than I am. Um, they will start to put out uh, arms if they're in a favorable, favorable place, and then they can put out multiple arms. You can see, if you look around here, you'll see some small arms that are just starting, some big arms that have been there for a long time. So they'll put out those arms, and then they can basically produce more flowers, more fruit, and more seeds. And so they're, they're, they're getting their, their seeds out on the landscape in larger numbers because of those arms. Kind of like a dominance thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Except it's sort of passive. <laughs> <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're not competing uh, <clears throat> with nearby saguaros in the same way that elk are competing for. <laughs> yeah, for harems. <laughs> for, yeah. Is it a, a an age thing, or, or just you know how healthy they are, no matter whether it's thirty years old or hundred years old? It's a combination. So they have to be healthy, but they they won't start to put out arms until they're a certain height and how what when that is in terms of age depends on how fast they grow which will vary in different parts of the range but yeah 75 years you know or so yeah but it can vary a lot now people hear the word census and they they might imagine that you're coming up with a finite number of how many saguaros you have in the park yeah is that uh it's a great question. So the word is is inaccurate. <laughs> it is not a census. We are not we are not counting every saguaro in the park. However, we use the number from the plots to estimate how many we have in the park, and we estimate based on the 2010 census that we have about 1.6 million saguaros in the park. And how does that relate to the first census back in 1990? Did you say? Yeah, we've it's it's increased dramatically. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but it it it's. Not quite doubled, but it's it's increased significantly since 1990. Wow, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, huh. definitely. Yeah, no, the, and again, part of that was the, the in 1990 they didn't find a lot of the the very young saguaros that were not visible yet. Um, so they were they were there, but we didn't find they didn't find them yet. But um, but yeah, no, there's been a tremendous increase in the number of saguaros in this park in the last four decades. Wow. And again, the nurse trees, they, they provide a, a bit of shelter from the, the, the sun and the, the cold in winter mm -hmm. and winter uh, and water yeah so so you know we don't know for sure and we've been so we're actually working with some scientists right now to understand kind of to sort of tease out what are the different factors that nurse trees provide so we've been putting like temperatures uh, thermometers underneath uh, little data loggers underneath trees during the coldest part of the winter the hottest part of the summer seems like the benefit during the coldest part of the winter may be the greatest and and scientists have long suspected that one of the critical factors for young saguaros is protection from the cold during these freeze events that we occasionally get, although we're getting fewer of them than we used to. Um, but there's also uh, potentially a moisture benefit. So saguaros, uh, the nurse trees provide, just from the shade itself, provide greater moisture mm -hmm. underneath the tree. But there's a, a fascinating um, 
line of research being pursued by one of our collaborators who's looking at, you know, nur nurseries like Palaverdes and Mesquites bring up water through a process called hydraulic lift from groundwater that's deeper in the ground. And there's some evidence that, that their, their roots at the surface leak a little bit, and that, that little bit of lost water potentially could be taken up by saguaros and, and help their survival. So maybe that they're, they're, they're benefiting um, the saguaros, the nurseries are benefiting the saguaros through this kind of water um, transfer. Yeah. Is one species of tree a, a better nurse tree than another? So we've been looking at that and trying to kind of uh, just sort of survey on some of our long-term plots the, the, and, and take measurements and, 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 and count the number of trees and saguaros and how they're related to each other. And so definitely the two best nurse trees uh, in the data are preliminary are Palo Verdes and Mesquites. Uh, and on average, in our first year of that study, on average about 20% of each of those species had a saguaro underneath them. However, saguaros do use other nurse trees. They use uh, acacias. They'll even use ocotillos and, and um, you know, uh, wolfberries and things like that. And then interestingly, in some parts of the park, they use what we call nurse rocks. And so the rocks provide some of the benefits that the trees provide. And, and again, we've been using these temperature data loggers and finding that, in fact, in the wintertime, the, the rocks provide actually quite a thermal benefit and, and, and help keep that area a local area around the, the, the small saguaro warmer than the surrounding desert. Hmm. Um, they also provide a shade benefit in the summer and, and probably provide some moisture as well. Nice, nice. Yeah. Why do you conduct the census? When I talked about the census, I mentioned kind of the benefits from an ecological point of view and from a long-term point of view. And, and what I mean by that sort of in a larger picture is that in national parks, you know, our job is to protect these resources like saguaros for future generations. It's not just about us. It's about, you know, will people be able to come here 30 or 100 years from now um, and see a saguaro? And, and what can we do? How can we gain knowledge that will allow us to make good decisions to protect the desert and protect the saguaro? So saguaros are kind of a neat example of that because they live longer than we do. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, you can't just study the saguaro, you know, in a couple of years during a graduate project and expect to know very much about that plant. You, you know, so a lot of the work that we do is, is sort of built on, uh, on work that was done many decades ago by people that aren't alive anymore. And, and our hope is that, you know, many decades from now, you know, that the data that we're collecting will be useful. The most important part of it from our point of view is that it's a citizen science project. So just about all of the data is collected by volunteers. And so um, they come out here, they measure the saguaros, they GPS the saguaros, they bump into the saguaros and get spines in them. <laughs> you know, they, they're out here kind of on the ground in the desert studying desert ecology. And that's an opportunity that people don't kind of normally get. And, and literally, we had 300 volunteers uh, helping us measure saguaros in 2010, and we expect at least that many this year. So, you know, it's a great opportunity to get people that may not be scientists in their everyday life to be scientists for a day and to come out and, and learn, you know, about the saguaro. And I think, you know, when we talk about kind of environmental change and, and a lot of the issues that we have in national parks and, and environment in general, we, we often argue in sort of an abstract way and um, we see this as sort of a hands-on way to sort of talk about, you know, the desert and how we can protect it and, you know, how it might be changing um, while we're in the field, while we're actually in the desert.
Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, non-profit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. My mother and I arrived at St. Mary's, Georgia, over an hour before this ferry was scheduled to launch towards Cumberland Island National Seashore, intent on checking in and exploring the small Georgia town. Not a single cloud dotted the blue sky over the roof of the visitor center, and already a long line snaked around the edge of the room, equally eager passengers holding their advanced reservations in hands or cell phones. An ambiance of excitement permeated the space. Cumberland Island National Seashore encompasses Georgia's largest barrier island, over 15,000 acres dedicated to preserving beach, maritime forests, history, and aquatic resources. Humans have inhabited the island for over 4,000 years. And in the late 19th century, the Carnegies bought 4,000 acres of the island to build several mansions, including the large Dungeness House. Though that was burned in the 1950s, visitors and wild horses can still roam the ruins. We perused the bookstore before moseying a few blocks down the road to the Cumberland Island Ferry dock, watching the morning ferry from the island pull in. You would not believe how many people disembarked just after 10.30 a.m. It looked like it was standing room only on that ferry. Large camping groups went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, lugging their gear in shiny metal carts from the ferry to the grass of a nearby park. The island is popular for camping, and the morning ferry totally proved it. Personally, I love ferries. Mom and I sat up top, scanning the golden marsh grasses below us for birds and other wildlife. We slowly followed the waterway through the meadows, and I counted a flock of American white pelicans, great egrets, double-crested cormorants, and multiple tern species. Honestly, I felt lucky that we could even access the island. 
barely two months before Hurricane Dorian barreled up the coast after destroying islands in the Bahamas, in turn damaging the boat docks in Georgia. The island closed while the park assessed the damage, though by mid-September the National Seashore had reopened. The docks had also been destroyed after Hurricane Irma, and as a result of this ongoing hurricane damage, the government has awarded the National Park Service a grant of over $3 million to repair the docks. Until then, the ferry just uses an alternate gateway. Still, I didn't take it for granted because the day before, I had visited Fort Matanzas in northeast Florida, and their ferry is still offline. The ferry ride stretched a very comfortable 45 minutes, paralleling the island until docking at the park's sea camp. Even from the boat, we could see wild horses along the beach, swishing their long tails as they munched grasses near the forest's edge. This trip was special to me, not only because my mom was visiting from the other side of the country, but also because I had hit the seventh month of my pregnancy and would soon have to curtail pretty much all of my travel. Pre-pregnancy, I would have planned an entire day on a bicycle, taking advantage of the gorgeous trails on the island, all beneath a ceiling of twisting oak branches and hanging Spanish moss. We would probably have taken the earliest ferry over and the latest one back, packing exploration and activity into every second on the island. Now, there are many people in their third trimester who may still be able to do that, but I moved a bit slower. We disembarked, not with bicycles, but with two camping chairs and a bagged lunch under our arms, snacking at a nearby picnic table and then walking about half a mile under the trees to the Atlantic Ocean. That beach is impressive. We visited during a low tide and from the edge of the dunes, the sand stretched so wide that the ocean was a mere blue ribbon on the other side. In one direction, the beach curved as far as the eye could see, and in the other, it continued all the way to the horizon, which was only interrupted by some kind of industrial facility in the far distance. A few people dotted the beach here and there, but honestly, we mostly had the coast to ourselves. There are definitely advantages to sitting in one place for a few hours and really soaking in the landscape. The pounding surf lulled us into relaxation, and we watched the antics of the sanderlings and ruddy turnstone shorebirds with interest. In fact, we sat so still that one small gray and white sanderling ran right up to our feet, darting away only when it realized that we were actually alive and not coat-covered statues. When walking along the water, we joined other visitors gazing at the multicolored shells and sand dollars along the surf line. I've heard after other hurricanes that truly giant shells wash ashore, but these were just the regular kind. Eventually, as most pregnant women do, I had to retreat back into the woods to use the restroom near the group campsites. It was not exactly close to the beach, and I had to head across the dunes, then along boardwalk, back towards the shade of the oaks. Suddenly, about halfway across the boardwalk, I froze. One of the wild horses grazed merely feet away. Trust me, I backed up. These are not domesticated horses and it's critical to give them their space. Her tawny coat blended with the golds and beiges of the dunes. Quiet and calm, she honestly mostly ignored me. And after a few moments, I skirted by on the raised boardwalk, knowing it provided a good amount of protection. A snort and a whinny from the other side of the boardwalk startled me a second time. And a nearly grown foal with a deep, mahogany color spooked, quickly moving beneath the boardwalk and towards her mother's side. No one else saw the horse and her foal but me. 
I didn't even have a camera or a cell phone, making that moment that much more ephemeral. In my current rounded state, that image of a mother and young of any species struck me that much more starkly. So I retreated to the beach and summoned mom so we could look together, multiple generations calmly coexisting along the beautiful island. The afternoon ferry left at 4.45 on the dot, and we shielded our eyes against the setting sun as the island faded into the distance. Someday I would like to return with my bike to better explore the ruins, to look for manatees along the docks and camp overnight beneath the Spanish moss. Hurricanes permitting, I have my eye on next fall. For National Parks Traveler, this is Erica Zambello. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it and hope you enjoy the various voices and stories we bring to you every week from around the National Park System. You can help us expand these shows with a donation. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that relies greatly on its listeners and readers to bring you editorial content from the parks every day of the year. You can donate at nationalparkstraveler.org via the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the website. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.